Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of James, chapter 1. This week I was reading and became aware of a uh, story that was on radio of several years ago now that focused on a particular scientist. The name of the scientist is Temple Grandin. She's a scientist that's been in the news some in recent years. Uh, she's autistic and has um, given her life to science and has become this very successful uh, scientist. And one of the things that she worked on, one of the things that she did, one of the things that she um, investigated was being able to determine the emotions of cows. So she was able to, through testing and measuring heart rate and brain waves and lots of different things, determine when cows were excited, terrified, scared, uncomfortable. Now, the beef industry was very interested in that research. That wasn't because of their overriding concern for the emotional well-being of cows. It's because when cows are being led to slaughter... If along the way they get scared or spooked or uneasy, the quality of the beef is lessened. So Temple Grandin was hired by all of these major beef producing companies to figure out the best ways to kill cows without them knowing they were going to be killed. So she gave them a research, she talked to them through it, and this was the conclusion that they came up to. That they had to keep the cattle as relaxed as possible. That they should remove anything from the side of the animals that isn't completely familiar. They said, so in, for instance, if the cows are going into the slaughterhouse and there are yellow raincoats hanging over the side, that's not a problem if every morning they see yellow raincoats there when someone comes to milk them. But if this is the first time they've ever seen yellow raincoats, it will scare them. She went on and said, workers shouldn't yell at the cows. They should never use cattle prods because they are counterproductive and unneeded. If you just keep the cows contented and comfortable, they'll go wherever they're led. Don't surprise them. Don't unnerve them. And above all, don't hurt them. Well, at least until you kill them. Along the way, she developed this new technology. In the system, the cows aren't prodded off the truck, but are led in silence onto a ramp. They go through a squeeze chute that gently uh, pressurizes the device that mimics a mother's nuzzling touch. The cattle continue down the ramp onto a smoothly curving path. There are no sudden turns. The cows experience the sensation of going home. The, the same kind of way they've traveled many times before. As they mosey along the path, they don't even notice when their hooves are no longer touching the ground. A conveyor belt slowly lifts them gently upward. And then, in a twinkling of an eye, a blunt instrument levels a surgical strike right between their eyes. They've transitioned from livestock to meat, and they were never aware enough to be alarmed that it was about to happen. The title of the program that was on was called Killing with kindness. And as I thought about that this week, and as I was thinking about what we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks, I thought about the number of believers 
and unbelievers in our world who are gradually being led along along a path that they're completely comfortable, not knowing that destruction is at the end. Now, for the unbeliever, it is eternal destruction. It is eternal separation from the Lord. For the believer, it is the consequences unintended of sin in our lives. What we're going to talk about over the next few weeks is how do we find ourselves on that conveyor belt towards slaughter and stop it? Pause. Think through what we're doing. Recognize the devices of the enemy and overcome the temptation in our lives. Over the next few weeks, we're going to think about how temptation works. We're going to think about what it does. We're going to think about how we can be ready for whatever is coming. Now, I know that that opening illustration is pretty gruesome, especially when we're about to have um, hamburgers, right? Maybe not the most advised today to speak of that. But the truth is, if we're not careful, we will allow our lives to be led along this path where we are just gradually making decisions that, become, that drift us farther and farther away from God. In James chapter 1. We're going to use James chapter 1. I mean, I'm going to have you turn back to Matthew because in the background of this whole series is going to be an understanding of the temptation that Jesus went through. But we're going to start in James because James gives us kind of a fly-by overview. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at the temptation of Jesus kind of from, a, from a, a, an overview before we get into the specific temptations. And in James chapter 1, verse 9, starts by saying, The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his position. But the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with the scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then... After his desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. There are three questions that are a part of almost every temptation that you will find yourself in. They have been true since the beginning of time. They are true today. They were present with Adam and Eve in the garden. They were present with this story like Jacob and Esau in the Old Testament, which we'll look at next week. They were present um, with the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. They were present at the temptation of Jesus, and they're present in your life today. And James alerts us to this in some roundabout ways, but we see it clearly in his writing and then also in the temptation accounts in Scripture. And what I want to do today is I want to take us through those three big questions. It's a three-question exam and say, how do you respond to this when your life finds itself or you find yourself in a place where temptation is running rampant in your life? And the first question that we must answer and that will be asked of you when temptation is a part of your life is a simple question, and it is simply the question, who are you? Who are you? Temptation always begins with a question of identity. 
Now, in James chapter 1, verse 9, it may be difficult to see that, but in the beginning of this, in 9 and 10, there's this strange kind of discussion of that the brother in herbal circumstances ought to take pride in his position, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position. What he's basically saying there is, don't have a skewed vision of who you are. Temptation begins this skewed vision of who you are, either pride or self-loathing. And Satan really doesn't care whether you think of yourself too highly or too lowly. Just don't think of yourself as you really are. For instance, in the garden, he comes into the garden, and Eve is there, and Eve and Adam have been given, it's strange to say Eve and Adam, and Adam and Eve have been given dominion over this garden, this perfection that God has created. And as they're placed in the garden, God tells them that they have dominion over every living being. Except for God and each other. So everything that flies in the air, that crawls upon the ground, that slithers upon the ground, they have dominion over, they have the rights over, they are more special than because of their unique creation of God. In fact, God says that only human beings were created in the image of God. And so you have Eve in the garden one day. She's walking around. She's looking at it. It's beautiful. When suddenly the serpent, an animal over which she has rightful dominion, comes up and starts to question her. And the first thing he questions is what they can eat. But then he goes and says, the reason God doesn't want you to eat of that tree is because he knows you're better than what he told you. He doesn't want you to eat that tree because when you do, you'll be more special than you are right now. You'll be like him. And immediately, he's questioning Eve's identity. When we get to Jesus, keep James here. If you're using the U version of the app, this, this, these verses will be there. But if you're using your Bible... Keep a a mark on James here and turn back with me to Matthew chapter 3. Because it's important to understand the temptation of Christ, which happens in Matthew chapter 4, by understanding what happens just previous to that. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit. And so we have the temptation account beginning in chapter 4, verse 1. But before that, when it says, Then Jesus, we need to understand what was He coming from. What we have to realize is that Jesus had just experienced a time of baptism with John the Baptist, literally climbed out of the river and walked into the wilderness. Somebody said that I read this week that his hair would have still been wet from the baptism of the Lord when he was going into the desert to be tempted. Now, generally, when we read what happens here, people would think the next thing would be a coronation, a celebration. It would be excitement. It would be it is time to celebrate God's son, Jesus, being with us. But Jesus gets out of the water and is led into the Spirit. Look, look at what happened at the baptism. In verse 13 it says, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him. Now, what I think is interesting here is you have this little conversation between Jesus and John the Baptist. and It may have gone on more than this. It may have been a discussion. But we get the essence of it here. He says, I need to be baptized by you, Jesus. Why don't you come to me? And Jesus said, this is the way it's got to be. It's proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At the moment heaven was open, he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. 
it's important to understand Jesus' temptation in light of his baptism. Now, here's what happens. Jesus goes and he says, I've got to fulfill this. And John says, you don't need this. And the truth is, Jesus didn't need to be baptized. He was perfect. He was righteous. He didn't need it. But what Jesus did in baptism is that by going down into that water, he identified with us as our fellow brother in traveling together. He identified with our sin in a way that would be shown much more on the cross. He identified with us as people. What he is saying here is that he is completely human. He is not human-like. He is not kind of like us. He is completely 100% human. But just in case we forget that he's also divine, when he comes up out of the water, what happens? This spirit comes and God says, this is my son. Now, that was a declaration of the fact that Jesus was God's son. But it's also a declaration that he is my chosen king. He is the Messiah. This is the one that's going to deliver my people. Here's what I find interesting. And I love the way Matthew puts these two together. Verse 17 is, this is my son whom I love, right? Look at verse 3 of chapter 4. This is the first temptation. How does Satan start the temptation? If. You are the Son of God. Prove it. Look at the second temptation in verse 5. If you are the Son of God, prove it. What he was basically saying is, are you who you say you are? And Jesus was comfortable enough in his identity to know that he didn't have to prove anything to the enemy. But the first question goes to our identity. How does that all relate to us? What we have to understand is that when Satan begins to tempt us, we generally will think one of two things. And they are both wrong interpretations of our identity. The first thing that we'll think is, well, you know what? I know that this is a dangerous thing. I know what I might get in trouble with here. But I'm special And whatever I do here won't affect anyone else or myself, really. We begin to think, you know what? I mean, I've known somebody else that got in trouble with that, but that's them. I mean, I can handle it. I can do it. I'm okay with it. I mean, I understand that that, that my friend who who tried this or did that or, or, or made that life decision, that it wrecked his marriage or it wrecked his friendships or it wrecked his life or it wrecked his health. I understand all that, but I'm special. I can handle it. That's the I'm better than I really am side of identity. The other side that will creep into our lives sometimes, sometimes after we've given into a temptation, sometime before, was that's just how I'm created and I am completely powerless to do anything about it. I can't handle it. When that temptation comes into my life, that's what I have to do. When that's put before me, I no longer have the power to do anything about it. And so Satan either convinces us that we're too good or we're too bad. When the truth is, we are co-heirs with Christ. We are people who have been made to where we are not powerless over our decisions. But at the same time, we must trust completely in the Lord to get us through those situations. The first thing that it says that we have to understand is, we have to be completely comfortable with who we are. Let me ask you a question. Are you completely comfortable with who you are and God has created you to be. 
the way He created you physically, the way He created you emotionally, the way He created you um, spiritually, the way He created you uh, intellectually. Now, I, I'm not talking about that we shouldn't try to improve ourselves and we shouldn't study and we shouldn't grow and we shouldn't take care of the bodies that He's given us, but are you comfortable in who you are? We live in the worst society in history for trying to make us think that nobody is good enough in who we are. This afternoon, I will go home, and for the 25 minutes I'm at home before I come back, it's a short afternoon, we may have a little longer, we may have an hour and a half, I'm going to turn on the TV, and there's probably going to be uh, basketball games on, baseball games on, and um, part of me just loves watching the sport, but there are, there's always part of me that takes me back to a day and time when I thought I might could do that. When I could play baseball professionally, or I could, well, I never could play basketball. I couldn't jump. But if I could play some kind of sport, or that I would be on some kind of, you know, some kind of big, big kind of star, or people would recognize me, or commercials come on, and the whole goal of commercials is to tell you that you don't have what you need. We'll talk about desires in a minute, but sometimes the commercials are you're not who you need to be. And we are inundated with it the whole time. And what I love about Jesus is. Among everything else, he is perfectly comfortable in this mix of complete humanity and complete deity. So the first question you have to ask is, am I completely comfortable with who I am? Oftentimes the temptations in our lives are just attempts by us to make ourselves look better or feel better about who we are. Here's a second question that we have to ask, and this comes back, keep your finger at Matthew 3, but goes back to James chapter 1. The second question we have to answer is, what do you want? The first question that will be asked of you is, who are you? The second one is, what do you want? Look what it says here in uh, verse 13. First of all, it reminds us that God doesn't tempt us. And that's a whole discussion that is broader than what we're able to do today. But Scripture is clear and evident that God doesn't tempt. He tests us. He doesn't tempt us. The biggest difference between testing and tempting is this. Testing is an attempt by the Lord to draw us into a closer relationship with Him and to make us better. Tempting is of Satan and the enemy, and its attempt is to move us away from God and to make us make decisions that drive us away from our Father. But He says God doesn't tempt. For God cannot tempt, nor does He tempt. Verse 14. But each one is tempted when? By his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Sometimes Christians have made us believe that desire in itself is wrong. Desire of any kind. You can't have any kind of desire. Just just kind of wash all that away. Just kind of become numb to all that. You've got to walk through this life bored and uninterested and you can't have any desires whatsoever, which is not scriptural in the least. Here's the truth. God created us with desires. And we had to have desires because He gave us a mission to accomplish. And so when He says that we are to subdue the earth, that we are to control the earth, He wanted us to use a desire for creativity and for lording over creation. He was okay with us using our gifts in that way. When He created us with a stomach and a digestive system, He gave us the desire to want food because that's what we need to give our bodies the fuel to keep going. When He gave us a thirst, He gave us a desire for the very thing we need to sustain us, which is water. 
when he told the first couple to go be fruitful and multiply, he had to give them a desire to be fruitful and to multiply. Desires in themselves are not bad. The problem is when our desires control us instead of us using them to give glory to God. What Satan will say to Jesus is, use the power that you have given to you by God to set this stone into bread so that you can fulfill your desire and make it all about you. What he basically says is, start to use God like a means to an end and not just as an end in itself. Whenever we start to give in to our desires and make them just about fulfilling us, we begin the process of allowing them to control our lives. Now, here's the issue. When you think about it in your life, desires control a large part of our decision-making. Think about romantically. I mean, most girls, when they're looking at a guy, do not think, you know, um, when I see him, I'm really falling in love with him because I can tell by the curve of his back and the strength of the muscles there that our offspring would be very strong. And I can tell by the way he walks that he walks with a confidence that will be instilled in the offspring that we have and other they will be able to go out into this world and succeed. That's not how it works, is it? Why are girls attracted to guys? Because the desires say, I'm attracted to him. In fact, sometimes desires attract us to people or to things we know we shouldn't be attracted to. It just happens, we say. The heart wants what the heart wants, which means desires control us. But here's the problem with that. They also give us this idea that our desires, that if we would just give in once, the desire would be filled and we wouldn't have to worry about it anymore. If I just leak a little bit of gossip in the workplace that's going to hurt someone's career this one time and help me get ahead, I won't ever have to do that again because I'll get to the place I want to be. If I just if I just look at this website once, I won't ever have to worry about it again because I just want to see what it's like. If I just take one drink, it's not going to make a difference because I'll know what it's like and that's all that will matter. If I just... If I just try it with this one guy or this one girl, I'll know and I won't wonder and that desire will be filled. But the problem is, giving in once fires the desire even more. Some people try to act like... uh, Jesus out in the wilderness didn't have real desires, and so that's why temptation wasn't very difficult for him. All I know is Scripture teaches us that Jesus was as fully human as us, and he walked out into the desert, and he fasted for 40 days. 40 days. Think about this. Scripture tells us he got tired. He got hungry. He got thirsty. He needed to sleep. He wept. He laughed. He cried. He had every kind of emotion that we've had. Now, think about your own life. If you had fasted 
for 40 days and you had the ability to turn a rock into a cheeseburger or whatever particular thing you really like, that's a real temptation. And the question was, was he going to use his desire to fulfill his need or to glorify God? Now, here is the most difficult thing about our desires. Each one of us individually has different desires. It's almost as unique to us as our DNA. And the enemy knows that. And they use personality-specific desires to lead us down a path of temptation. Who are you? What do you want? And here's the last thing that you have to answer. Where are you going? Verse 15. And this talks about when we give in to that desire, when we actually do what we know we shouldn't or we're tempted to do. Verse 15 says, After desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is full grown, it gives birth to death. Temptation only works if possible, future, unintended consequences are concealed from your mind. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden? Eve is tempted. They come up to her and say, Eve, did God say you couldn't eat of any tree? And she goes, no, no. He said we could eat of the trees. We just can't eat of this one tree. Well, why? He goes, we said we'd die. He goes, you're not going to die. You can almost hear Satan kind of give it. Do you think you're going to drop dead? I mean, do you think that you're going to eat the apple, the cherry, the fruit, whatever it was, and you're just going to immediately plop on the ground dead? That's not going to happen. God's not going to do that. Satan veiled the consequences of her actions until she was done with the action. Now, let me say this to you. If you were able on a daily basis to see the consequences of your choices, most of us would make better choices. I mean, the reality of the consequences of our choice. But the enemy doesn't want you to see them. In fact, there are some people that, that they've talked to, to believers, to, to, to Christians, strong believers who get caught in cycles of, of destruction. They get caught in temptation and give in to it. And they ask them at the end, they say, well, why did you keep doing it? Like you talked about a little guilt that you felt. Why did you keep doing it? And they said, well, I just thought if it was too bad, God would allow me to get caught. And I went so long and didn't get caught. And the truth is, the enemy is going to let you continue in your sin until it is at just the right moment to cause mass destruction. In fact, there may be some of you here today that are in a cycle of sin. And you think, well, I'm getting away with it. Nobody knows about it. It's just happening. It's not affecting anybody. And because I'm getting away with it, it emboldens you a little more every day to keep in that pattern of sin. When the truth is, if you continue in it, when sin gives birth and is full grown, it brings death. Now, not necessarily physical death, although it could be. It could be emotional, relational, social, areas of your life that are completely affected. I... Uh, I was thinking about the temptation of Jesus' account. And, I mean, all this stuff we're saying today, it's all because of Jesus. I'm alive. It's um, Savior's mighty to save. 
I mean, all of that we sing about the glorious name and power and glory of Jesus Christ. If he would have turned a stone into bread, it would have been done. If he would have jumped and allowed himself to be saved, it would have been done. If he would have bowed to Satan, it would have been done. Now, in the wilderness, by himself with Satan, when he was hungry beyond what we can imagine, it seems pretty insignificant to turn a piece of stone into bread. But in the eternal history of all time, it would have been very significant. We're going to talk next week a little more in detail about exchanging momentary pleasure for eternal reward. This morning, I, I just wonder, as you have choices and things flash before you, are you thinking about the unintended consequences? Or are you letting Satan veil that from you? I, uh, on the way in this morning, my parents were in. They started, they've headed back. They came to early service. But they were in this, morning, uh, this weekend. And um, Dad, when he's here, he, one of his favorite things is to drive me church. He likes to, we, we talk on the way. It's just something we do. He used to, when I was a preacher boy, when I was, some of you say you still are a preacher boy, but when I was young, when I was like 18, 19, 20 years old, and I would have anywhere to go around Dyersburg, Dad wanted to drive me. He, me and him were going to go. It's just one of our things. And so, um, today for some reason, we didn't have much conversation. It was raining. We talked about the rain a little bit. And on the way here, he, we stopped at McDonald's and got us something to eat. And uh, while we were waiting for our food, he was talking to the lady giving money. I, I just had my Twitter open on my phone, and I was looking through it, and there was a tweet from Daniel Aiken, who's the president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. And on Sunday mornings, my, my Twitter feed is filled with um, preachers, people that I follow, people that I know or, or don't know, but, but that's who it, it's filled with. And it's this one I'm preaching on today, or pray for me, or excited about our services, or that kind of stuff. Daniel Aikens caught my attention. I don't, even, I don't know where he's preaching today. I don't know the congregation. I don't know the pastor that it referenced. He said, pray for me today. Preaching at a hurting church. Pastor resigned in November with moral failure. Killed himself this week. I don't know what the moral failure is. And I don't need to speculate about it. But here's what I can guarantee. When he was faced with the temptation of choosing to do it or not, in his mind, he never thought, making this decision will lead me down a path that will cost me my church, my family, and ultimately my life. It'd be nice if we saw all the unintended consequences that could come from our personal decisions. But either God doesn't allow that or Satan veils it from us or both. But in each moment, we can make the choice that is right in that time.